0: Thanks, Ricky. So as far as we know, it was a day like any other day. Nothing unusual about it. It It's an old man out perhaps tending his garden, maybe spending the morning in the cool of the day waiting for his uh, relatives to come by, maybe have a barbecue that day, throw some carne asada on the grill, watch the game. That was the plan. And then something happened that just threw everything off. I mean, he had been alive for 75 years and never had this happened before, never had there been a day like this. But there he was, tending his garden, just minding his own business, expecting this to be no different than any other day when he heard uh, a voice call his name. And he turned and looked, but he saw nobody, and so he went back to whatever he was doing, and he heard the voice call his name again. And now he was confused. He stood up and he looked around, and he he said, "I'm, I'm here. And the voice of the Lord said, Abram, I have something for you to do. And he called him that day to follow him. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Hopefully you brought a Bible with you If not look on with somebody nearby, but turn to Genesis chapter 12. And let's look at this day that is unlike any other day. Think about how it influences this day for us today. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, when we think of Abram or Abraham as his name was changed to, we think of the father of our faith, the patriarch of Israel. We think of this great man of God who was a follower of God, but not at this time. At this time, he was just another guy living in a pagan land. We have no reason to believe he'd ever even heard of the one true God. And yet, he's hearing this voice of one who claims to be the one true God. And the Lord says to him, I'm going to require some things of you. I have a plan for your life, and it involves following me. It involves trusting me, and it involves stepping out in faith. I mean, you and I have enough trouble, don't we, when we read something in God's Word and we know exactly what it is He wants us to do, but we just don't want to do it? That's hard enough, right? But He says to Abram, I'm this God who you don't know and whom you've never heard of. And I have a plan that I'm not going to tell you about, really. But you have to get up from where you are and you have to leave everything you know. You have to leave your comfort, your home, your relatives, leave everything behind, and I want you to go and follow me. Where am I going to follow you, Lord? I'll let you know when you get there. That's a pretty high calling. And and he says, if you, if you follow me like this, I have a plan for your life, and that plan involves making you a great nation. Now, as I said, he's 75 years old at this time, and he has a wife, and she's the wife of his youth, and they've never had any children. His wife is barren, unable to have children. And so he's... God is speaking of giving him this great legacy, a great nation that he's going to raise up. How are you going to raise up a great nation? I don't even have a son. I don't even have a child at all. And I'm 75 years old now, Lord. I think if you had called me maybe 50 years ago, the timing would have been better. But we're kind of set in our ways here. And, and people don't have children at 75. Well, he wasn't going to have any children at 75. It was going to be when they were like 90 and 100. But God said, I'm going to give you a child. And from that child, I'm going to make a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to bless, look at what it says in verse three, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I want us to understand this. This is not something new for God. It's not that when he sent Jesus, he said, you know what, I think we'll try to reach the whole world with the love of God. No, from the beginning, when he called Abram, he said, listen, I'm going to use you to be a blessing to all the nations, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. I have a plan for them, and it's going to be through you that I bless them. From the beginning of time, God has called his followers to be light to the world so that people would be blessed through those whom he's already blessed. If you're in Genesis, turn one book to the right and go to the book of Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to see this again in Exodus chapter 19, and it's going to be stated in a different way. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 5. Speaking to Israel, this is when Moses comes down from Sinai, and he's giving them the law, and he's telling them to follow the law. And speaking to Israel, he says, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. You're supposed to tell Israel, Moses, that I have a plan for them, that they would become a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Now, what is a priest? A priest is someone who who reaches down and takes the hand of man and reaches up and takes the hand of God and brings them together. A priest is a go-between, between God and man. He's one who represents God to men and represents men to God. And the nation of Israel, the people of God, this great nation that he's blessed Abram with, are called by God to be a nation of priests. Why? Because he told Abraham, I will bless every family in the earth through you. And so now Israel has this responsibility They are not supposed to just huddle up in a corner and have their little holy time with God, but they're actually to care for the people around them and share the love of God with others who don't yet know him. And that's how he's going to spread the word. And he gets more specific if you turn to the book of Deuteronomy. So go three more books to the right and you'll find the book of Deuteronomy. And go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now, we were in Deuteronomy 6 in this very passage last week. Uh, And I just want to revisit it for a moment, beginning in verse 4. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Again, speaking to the Jews, he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart Okay, so I've called you to be a holy nation, and you're going to have to take my word, the truth of my love for you, and my plan for your life, and you're going to have to hold it in your heart. That would be enough if all you were to be was a holy nation, but I've also called you to be a kingdom of priests. So he goes on, and he says this, chapter, um, chapter 6, verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your sons, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, the truth of my word and my love for you, not only are you to keep it close in your heart, but you are to transmit it to your children. So as families, it is the responsibility of parents to teach their children about the love of God. When you lie down, when you rise up, when you go on the way, all of these times we're to be teaching our children, raising them up. One generation at a time, God intends to fulfill his promise to Abraham that he's going to bless all of the world with the love of God. And God's provided families... For the training and discipling of children so that that could happen generationally. And parents are commanded by God to teach their children about God and to train them in righteousness. And sometimes training involves tremendous patience and gentleness and graciousness. And sometimes training involves strictness and discipline. But whatever the case, it is incumbent upon parents to do this for their children so the children will grow up knowing God. But children have a responsibility in all this too. Let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been working through the book of Ephesians now for the better part of this year. And we're in chapter 6, which is the final chapter. And we're picking it up in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Before we get there, let me remind you. We've been talking about the subject of submission in family life. And how we're all to be submitting to one another and what it looks like to be submissive if you happen to be a husband, what it looks like to be submissive if you happen to be a wife. And now he's going to get into what does it look like to be submissive if you happen to be a child or if you happen to be a parent. And so there's a responsibility here for children. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's amazing to stop and think, and most of us don't stop and think about this, and we we almost never see it, but it's amazing to stop and think about God's plan for family life and what it looks like when a family lives together the way God called them to, and what it looks like when a husband actually loves his wife as Christ loves the church, when he's willing to lay his life down to lift up his wife and family, when he's willing to sacrifice himself, when he's willing to make it not about himself but about those that he's been given responsibility to love and care for. And we, we forget what it would look like with a husband like that and a wife who, who submits lovingly to her husband, who respects her husband, who comes alongside of her husband and supports him and helps him and encourages him, and, and they work together and live as one. Husbands serving their wives, wives respecting their husbands, children obeying their parents, parents loving and guiding and directing and training their children with grace and understanding. But ever since the Garden of Eden, that picture of a family has been all marred up. Picture a photograph of a perfect family, but it's all wrinkled and crinkled and scratched and torn. That's kind of what families look like today as a result of sin. The family is under a curse. And here's the problem with every family. It's made up of individuals. And here's the problem with every individual. We are selfish. That's the issue. All of us. Husbands are selfish. Wives are selfish. Children are selfish. Everybody looking at life from behind their own eyeballs and thinking about how it affects them and and wanting their own interests to be taken care of. Everybody in the family has to struggle against the curse of sin. And some of us in that struggle are losing the battle more often than we're winning it. There's just too many husbands who are abusing their position and and abusing their wives and children instead of loving them and sacrificing them and laying their lives down for them. There are too many wives who are refusing to be one with their husband, who are refusing to submit to their husband, who are refusing to walk hand in hand, but instead are chasing after their own ideas and their own visions to serve themselves. There's too many children who are rebelling against their parents at every turn. It's an amazing thing to see in our society today, just how, how respect for parents has become such an unusual thing how how honoring your father and mother and, and obeying what they tell you has become so out of the ordinary. You know, I remember when our kids were little, uh, Christy and I were pretty strict parents and, and our kids understood that when we tell you to do something, we expect you to obey us. And So we would sometimes go to a public place, it would be in a restaurant or something like that, having dinner and our kids are there and we're having a great time together as a family and over here, two tables over, there is some kid that is just tearing the place up, right? You've all seen this. And and, and and you're sitting there, and you're watching this kid, and the mommy is saying, sit down, and he's saying no, and he's hitting her with a fork, and he won't eat his, you know. It's just getting crazy, and I don't want to, and the whole deal. And I always remember whenever that would happen, looking at my children, I'm talking when they are little, and seeing the look on their face, like, oh, that kid's going to die. <laughs> that was what they thought, like, ah how can he do that? Like... Oh, my gosh! They're like praying for the kid two tables over because because that was the sort of thing that we didn't allow in our family and and if if that happened, it was met with consequences. And yet, I feel for parents today who who are just struggling and they're tired and the kids are pressing in their last nerve, they're like, "Ah!" I, you know, and, and kids taking advantage of that, and, and the family just all twisted up, and people working against one another almost defensively instead of out of love. And Too many parents are neglecting their responsibility to train up their children in the way they should go, and they're, they're just uh, trying to get through these years. And some parents are actively abusing their children, the, the system of child care in America, the foster care system and all of that is just overflowing with people because children are being neglected and abused by parents. I mean, this is not what God had in mind when he created the family. And so he tells us in his word, I have a better better picture, I have a better standard, I have a better way. And it's really pretty simple. But most of us know that just because something's simple doesn't mean it's easy, right? It's not easy to be a Christ-honoring, submissive person in your family. Now, this passage on parents and children that I just read to you is pretty straightforward. I'm not going to spend a ton of time discussing this and explaining it, but there is something that I want you to understand. First of all, I want you to understand that in chapter 5, it says wives are to submit to their husbands, but here in chapter 6, it says children obey your parents. The, the, the command given to wives to submit is not the same command as the command that is given to children, which is to obey. They're entirely different concepts. They're not just different English words. They're different Greek words, and they don't mean the same thing. We've talked a lot about what submission means. If you didn't hear it, you can go to our website, listen, check out the podcast. Do go back and check out these last two or three sermons. But, but submission is an attitude. It's a heart position. It's, it's a way of looking at others as more important than yourselves, And God calls us all to be submissive. But obedience is different. In fact, you could be submissive without always obeying. And there are times you can obey without being submissive. They're not the same thing. Obedience, basically, is doing what you're told. And the implication of obedience is that the person who you are obeying has authority and power to make you obey, right? So children are told to obey. You know why? Because if you have a four-year-old, and, and he's over there playing with his Legos, and it's bedtime, and you say, hey, Tommy, it's time to put the Legos away, and we're going to go put pajamas on, and Tommy ignores you, which Tommy sometimes might do, right? Right? Tommy ignores you, but you're the parent, and Tommy's four, and he's over there playing with his Legos. Watch this. You go over, you pick up Tommy, and you carry him to his room, and you put his pajamas on him. Guess what? You have power over Tommy, right? Now, Tommy wants you to believe he has power over you. So that battle is going to go on and on, right? But you have the ability to enforce your orders, right? In prison, if you're a prisoner, in my many years in prison, I learned this. No, I'm... (laughs) People, people love pastors who have a past, right? So, I, no, I've never been in prison. But um, if you're a prisoner, the guards have weapons and badges and uniforms, signs of authority. And if you do not obey them, guess what? They can make you obey them. It's the same with police. Police have badges and guns and authority, and if you refuse to obey a police officer, they can make you obey them. You can fight if you want, but you're probably going to end up in the back of a police car with handcuffs on, and you are going to do what they called you to do. Now, now Tommy, he can fight you until he's dead, and he would not have obeyed. And the prisoner can fight the guard until he's dead, and he would not have obeyed. And you can fight the policeman until you're dead, but they have the authority to go however far they have to go in order to make you obey. And when God calls us to obey, he's calling us to obey someone who has authority. Now, who has the ultimate authority? God. So when we're called to obey any human authority that has been placed in our life by God, we're being called to obey God. So there's a difference between obedience and submission, but the two sometimes go hand in hand. Submission is the attitude obedience is the action. And then if you look at verse 2, it goes further. It says, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now we've got the word honor. We have to understand something about children. Uh, Children's cognitive development happens gradually. Their brains are still developing as they're little, right? And one of the last developmental stages of the brain is the ability to handle abstract concepts. So you cannot teach a four-year-old to be submissive. Submissiveness is a concept that a four-year-old is not capable of handling. That's why we teach four-year-olds to, to obey, right? But as they grow, something happens. As the brain develops and as their own will develops, something happens. There's a point at which in a child's life he comes to realize, maybe it's when he's nine, maybe it's when he's 16, but somewhere in there, there is a point, if if you've got a kid in the room, cover his ears, there's a point at which he goes, you know what, he can't make me. And when that light goes on and they go, my parents can't make me do anything. They can send me to my room, but I can go out the window, right? They could tell me to go to school, but I can leave. They could tell me it's time for bed, but I don't have to. They can't make me. And when a child comes to the understanding they can't make me, they better be ready to be submissive because otherwise they're going to be in big trouble. It has to become a choice of the heart at some point. But obedience is what children are told to give even in the beginning. And there's one more thing you need to notice here. These directions for submissive living in the family are never one-sided. Wives, submit to your husbands. It doesn't stop there. Husbands, love your wives and sacrifice for her as Christ has for the church. Children, obey your parents. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In other words, do what is best for them. Do not abuse your authority in their lives. So the wives are given a responsibility, as is the husband. The children are given a responsibility, as is the parent. Authority and leadership are never, ever to be abused. They are always given to be used to serve and care for and lift up those whom God has given you authority over. A husband needs to always do what's best for his wife. Uh, A parent needs to always do what's best for their children. But this kind of submissive thing doesn't stop with the family. Look at verse 5. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does... This he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free, and masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Now, I'm teaching through the book of Ephesians, and... and you know, I got into chapter 5 and there's some really good stuff that I could teach and apply and everybody was digging it and we got to the whole section on wives submit to your husbands and people started scowling at me a little bit and it wasn't as popular anymore and I'm like well I got to teach it, it's right here in the passage so I'm going to have to teach what the word of God says and, and then I finally get through it and I'm like okay children obey your parents, this is easy, everybody's going to say amen to that except maybe some children and that's why we sent them in there and so it's all good, right? And then I come to this passage on slavery. And I know all of you are thinking the same thing. Oh, good, finally something that I can apply. (laughs) Right? What? This is really weird. What am I going to do with a passage that is telling slaves how to be better slaves? I have two major problems with this right from the beginning. First of all, how do I make this applicable to us? If you are... If you're filling out some sort of form and it asks for occupation, raise your hand if you write down slave. Anybody? Nobody has the occupation of slave? Okay, well, maybe we'll just close our Bibles, we'll call it a day, and we'll get out of here early. Yeah, right. Um, that's probably not going to happen. So my, my first problem is, how does this apply to us, teaching for slaves? And my second problem is this, why does the Bible seem to be condoning slavery? I mean, at best, it's silent. <laughs> I would think if there's going to be verses on slavery in the Bible, what they would say is, masters, release your slaves right now. That, that's, the only, that's the only thing I could think to say about slavery, right? And yet, Paul has the audacity under the influence of the Holy Spirit to write instructions for slaves on how to be better slaves, why in the world does the Bible seem to not take a position against slavery? Now, we got to get some context here because most of us, when we think of slavery, we are thinking what we learned in our history books, right? Or, or, you know, I don't know, maybe Ed Baldwin remembers the days of slavery back when he was a kid. I don't know. Some of you remember this. Jim's not here. I looked for him. I, sorry. Um, but, but we remember our history books and we go aha, I read about that. I know that for more of our nation's history than not, we had slaves in this country. And and slavery is this huge blight on the American record and everybody's ashamed of it and we all look back. I don't know anybody today who goes, I'm still for slavery. I think slavery is a good thing. Reasonable people don't believe in slavery. and And yet it hasn't been that long since we've been away from it as a nation. And so, When I read about slavery, immediately I get this picture of people chained up in my mind and people being whipped and people being kidnapped from their land and taken on boats and forced to work, people becoming the property of other people and being branded, having no human rights, but having all of that stripped from them. And I say, you know, how in the world can the Bible address such a thing and not come out against it? Well... We need to understand that slavery at that time was different than slavery is today. In fact, in the Roman Empire, uh, 30 to 40% of the people in the first century Rome were slaves. 30 to 40% of all of the people in the Roman Empire. But they were not slaves in the way that we think of slavery. What we think of as slavery is people um, are kidnapped or taken away from their land, and they're brought and become property of other people. But in fact, the Bible is talking about something different here. Now, the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and and this book of Ephesians was written not only to the Ephesian church, but to every, um, every follower of Christ from that time forward. For countless generations, meant to be read and understood by all people. So what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, before we get too upset about the Bible being silent on slavery, go to First Timothy chapter one. If you're in Ephesians, just turn a few pages to the right. After first and second Thessalonians you come to First Timothy. I want you to go to First Timothy chapter one and we're gonna pick it up in verse eight. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for those ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." He's talking about the law. The purpose of the law is to convict those who are lawbreakers. And he gives a bunch of titles to those people. He calls them unholy, ungodly, profane, and all of that. And then he gets into specific things. And he talks about people who murder their fathers and mothers and thieves and and a whole list of terrible things. And then he wraps it up by saying, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, go to verse 10. Verse 10. We're just picking up in the middle of the list, immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That word kidnappers, does anybody reading along in their own Bible have a different word because they have a different translation? What what do you have? Slave Slave traders. Yeah. It will say slave traders or slavers or it will say men stealers. That's the literal translation of the word. We think of kidnapping as you go to the park, you see a kid whose mom isn't watching, you grab him, you take him off, you hold him for ransom or whatever. That's not what the word here means. It doesn't mean that at all. The word literally means men stealers. And it was used solely to describe people who went and raided a village and took people away and turned them into slaves. Now, that happened in the Roman Empire back in the day. But it was an extremely small percentage of that 30 to 40% of Roman uh, people who were slaves. The rest of them were a different kind of slave. And it still happens in our society today, right? There, there are still, even though slavery is illegal, there's still a whole sex trafficking um, world where people are, are stolen away and held captive there are still people who, who bring people into the country illegally and lie to them about opportunities they're going to have and instead hold them captive and force them to be slaves. All of that still happens, but it's very small percentage of people. Now, obviously, every person that happens for is a terrible tragedy. That's not my point. But my point is, just like today, it's a very small percentage of people in America. It's also a very small percentage of the Roman Empire who was that kind of slave. That was looked down upon by everyone. But 30 to 40 percent of the population were slaves by choice. That is to say that they entered into some sort of an agreement with somebody, and it was a working relationship. So how did that work? Well, um, in some cases, there were people who um, uh, sold themselves into slavery. They they had no means, they had no opportunities, they had no food, they had no homes and they were desperate and they couldn't find work and they would go to somebody and they would say, listen, I will enter into an agreement with you and I will come and live on your land and you will take care of me and my family and I will work for you. And they were called slaves. And those slaves had the right to end their contract at any time. It was just like being an employee today. There were others who were slaves because they uh, had used themselves as collateral on a loan and then defaulted on the loan. And so they became slaves in order to work. If I owe you three years worth of labor in money, then I'll give you three years of labor and I will be your slave for that amount of time until it's paid off. That was also very common. There was a, a sense of indentured servitude that was common in, in those days. There were people who, who volunteered to be slaves in order to put themselves in a position where they could start a new direction in life, like they wanted to start in a business or something, but they didn't have any resources for that. So they would work as slaves until there was enough opportunity created, and then they would do that. In fact, in the book of Acts, there's a, a governor of Israel, his name is Felix, and he, he, uh, he tries Paul in one of Paul's trials in the book of Acts. Felix was a slave. He started out as a slave, and he worked his way up and ended up becoming the governor of that whole area. So that is a common thing in those days. It was not looked down upon by people. It was not shameful. It was nothing to be upset about. It was the way that their commerce worked, okay? So you would attach yourself to someone for a period of time, and when that period of time was up, you would be done. So it's interesting, if we go back now to Ephesians, that Paul gives direction to both slaves and to masters, right? And, and if you want to relate to this and get it practical in your life, think of it this way. A slave, as he's using the term here, is, as an, is an employee. And a master, as he's using the term here, is an employer, right? So this is information for those of us who are either employees or employers. Now let me ask this question. Uh, In your vocation, in your work life, raise your hand if you have someone in authority over you at work. You have a boss at work. Okay? All right, hands down. Now, raise your hand if at work you have authority over someone. There's somebody that answers to you. Okay, so a whole bunch of us raised our hand both times, right? Because that's the way it is for most people. We have someone that we answer to, and there are people who answer to us. That's the way organizational charts work in corporate America. So this passage applies tremendously to all of us who are in that situation or will be in that situation. So for the purpose of application, think of it as employees and employers. So Paul's trying to make this really practical for the Ephesian Christians, Um, And and for us to make it practical today, we need to understand this um, as it applies to us. So I'm going to wrap this up by making it extremely practical. I'm going to give you three things that you need to think differently about. And we're going to do it fast. Are you ready? Number one, we have to change who we work for. In our minds, we have to change who it is that we work for. And apologies to my English professors. I know I ended the sentence with a preposition. And it's sort of driving me nuts, but I still want to say it this way. We have to change who we work for. We have to understand that we don't work for our boss. You don't work for the man. You work for the king of kings and lord of lords. We have to understand this, guys. If we would just get this straight, it would change everything about the way we live in the workplace. Because how many times do we, do we um, not take our job seriously because after all, it's not that important. But we work for the King of kings and Lord of lords who tells us whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all diligence as unto the Lord. We need to understand who we work for. And when we understand that, that will help us to change how we work. We need to change how we work. If, if we work for the King of kings and Lord of lords, let me ask you this question, uh, and you don't have to answer it, just answer it in your heart. Do you sometimes work differently when the boss is watching compared to when the boss is not watching? i bet most of us do. I'll bet most of us have. That, that if the boss is right there, boy, you're, you're focused, you're doing your job, you're earning that six bucks an hour or whatever they're paying you, right? But if the boss is not there, Things get a lot more lax, everybody relaxes, now maybe I'll check my email, I'll do a little of this, a little of that, that sort of thing. Um, But here's the deal, Um, if you're going to work one way when the boss is watching and another way when the boss isn't watching, then all of us need to remember something, the boss is always watching, right? If we we change who we're working for, then we're going to change how we work. The boss is always watching. And he says this to masters. He says in verse 9 Masters, do the th- same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. We need to understand you may be an employer, you may be an employee, but either way, we have the same master. And the master is watching. And he is not partial, and he is the one who gives rewards. Cause I have news for you, the boss is always looking. And Christians should be the hardest working, the most trustworthy, the most honest, the most committed employees in every company. And it's a shame that we're basically not. And that that it's not as though I'm getting calls every day here going, hey, listen. I got an opening at my job and what I need is another Christian because, man, Christians, they just work so hard. If I was an employer and employees had the, and Christian employees had the reputation for being the hardest workers, the most trustworthy, and all that kind of stuff, I would never put an ad out. I would just call the local pastor every time and go, hey, who do you got? Send me another one. I need another one of those. But that's not the reputation that we have. And we need to be challenged by that. So we, we need to we need to change uh, who we work for. We need to change how we work. And finally, we have to change what we work for. Because here's the fact. Most of us, we work for our paychecks. We work because at the end of the week, they hand you a check, and that's how you buy groceries and pay the rent and do all that kind of stuff. We, We work... For our Christmas bonus, we work for the promotion that we're looking forward to. We work for that corner office, whatever it is that we're trying to get and achieve. We need to change our thinking about that. We need to change what we work for because I'll tell you what we work for. If you're a Christian, you work for the glory of God. That's what you work for. We have this wrong idea that my Christian life is, you know, is over here and I behave this way at church and I behave this way in these kinds of settings, but over at work, boy, it's a different deal. You know what we need to remember? This life is temporary. You know what, you know what your work life is about right now? It's, it's about building a resume for heaven. I wish I had time. I'd spend more time on this. But, but the, the Bible says so much about God's reward system in heaven and how we ought not to be working for the temporal things, but we ought to be working for that which is eternal. If you glorify God, he honors and rewards that in eternity. All you're doing here is building your resume for heaven. That's where the real rewards come. You work for the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And does your quality of work reflect that? And if you are an employer, well, there's a bunch of people under you that you have responsibility for. Do you treat them with love and respect and dignity? And are you working to help build them up and make them successful? Or are you propping yourself up on their shoulders so they can make you successful? See, that's the difference between one who's living submissively in the workplace and one who's not. The submissive life is tricky. It does not come easy. And in the flesh, it is impossible to do it apart from God. That's why I keep reminding you that this whole section began with these words, be filled with the Spirit. If the Spirit of God does not empower us We are going to fail at the submissive life, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a husband uh, and a father and, and child relationship or mother and child relationship, whether it's in friendships, whether it's in the workplace, wherever it is in the church or in the community, we are going to fail consistently at living the submissive life until we are finally willing to let go and let God be in charge of everything. And when it's all about him and nothing about me, amazing things can happen. Because here's the deal. If you're a parent, you just need to know this. Your kids are watching. If you're a Christian, you need to know this. The world is watching. And they're judging God based on what they're seeing in you. And and here's one last thing. Your Father in heaven is watching. And if that's true, we're going to have to press into him. We're going to have to let him carry us. We're going to have to take him at his word and trust him like Abram who just said, yes, Lord, and left everything behind and followed him. We're going to have to let him be Lord, and we're going to have to be the servants. Press into him, submit to him, and do all that you do for the glory of God. At home, in the workplace, in the church, in the community, everything that you do, let it be done for the glory of God. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we just want to...